Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial topics with interesting people. My guest this week is Mike Gonzalez. Mike is a senior fellow in Heritage's uh, Allison Center for Foreign Policy and the Angelus T. Arondondo, which I'm going to mess up, but I love the second part of this, the E. Pluribus Unum Fellow. Um, I love the name of that. Uh, he is the author of a book called The Plot to Change America, How Identity Politics is Dividing the Land of the Free. Uh, before enter- entering the think tank world, Mike worked as an international journalist for many, many years, um, including, as I discovered when I was prepping for this interview, covering the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in the 80s and being jailed by a dictator in Panama, um, but ultimately landing as a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. He also has another book slated to come out this fall on the organization Black Lives Matter. He also has recently earned perhaps what I think is the most prestigious distinction of his career. His work has been singled out by the uh, Teachers Union president. Randy Weingarten is dangerous and deserving of opposition research, which is high praise in these quarters. Uh, Welcome, Mike, to High Noon. You know, after 2020, there are worse enemies to have than the NEA and the AFT. They're, They're widely disliked. Uh, by the American people for what they did to our children. I I am uh, I'm excited that people, even though it happened in such an unfortunate way, that people are realizing how much power the teachers unions have um, over the public education system, and and the fact that they really are not prioritizing the education of children. Um, in, in over uh, their pandemic concerns initially, and then um, also, of course, uh, over their politics, but. I want to start out with um, a little bit more of a personal question. Your family left Cuba, I believe, when you were a teenager, um, and you've lived in wildly different systems and countries. You know, how has that shaped your thinking and, and how you think your, your book is called uh, The Plot to Change America, right? Um, how has that shaped your thinking about your country of choice, America, and, um, and also the comparative value of, of different kinds of systems? Yeah, I was, I was uh, still a preteen. I uh, had just turned uh, 12 when we finally got the word that we were, we were going to be allowed to leave Cuba. My my parents had put in to, uh, to leave in 1967 and took, uh, it took uh, four, five years for, for them to, uh, the, the regime to allow us to go. Uh, Francisco Franco and Castro, who had a lot of overlap in many ways, um, Franco was a Galician from the northwestern region of Galicia. Castro, too, was a Galician. Um, they, they, they both had very pro-Hispanic, uh, not in the sense that it is used in this country since, since policy uh, uh, directive number 15 in 1977, but in the sense of Spanish origin or origin in Spain. They, had, uh, they, they both agreed on that. Um, and they, and Franco said, has said to Castro, why don't you let the professionals come to Spain and wait for the U.S. visa there? Uh, and, and, and eventually Castro led, my parents were lawyers. They, my dad died. They only let us go after my dad died. Uh, and, and he let us, they let us go. And then I, I was able really to see the end of fascism in Spain, you know, Franco and Salazar being the last to, two holdovers of a fascist era, uh, really kind of soft fascism. They, they didn't persecute people for their religious ideas. In fact, during the Holocaust, any most Jews that made it across the Pyrenees were able to reach Portugal and leave. Uh, the father of a good friend of mine, uh, a man in his 80s, I uh, talked to him often about that because he escaped uh, in the 1940s uh, through Spain 
but I was able to see that and it, it, it rapidly industrialized, industrializing dictatorship, which which was about to become again a monarchy. And then I came to the U.S., which is pure freedom, and it's still pure freedom. Uh, this this idea that that our social order is oppressive, which is one of the bedrock beliefs of of, of uh, critical race theory and of Black Lives Matter, is 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 fantastical. It's, it's just a fantasy that they have. It proves that they have not lived, they have not traveled overseas. And America really, when I came at the age of fourteen, uh, to the the the, 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 the the you know the, the the beating heart of New York City, Queens. Uh, I, they had me at hello. I, I really loved Queens, uh, the, the, the most forgotten of boroughs, perhaps Staten Island, more forgotten than Queens. And uh, I loved the, the city. I made a, an early error. I, I liked the, the Mets right off the bat. I corrected that within two years. I became a Yankee fan, and I have since been a Yankee fan. <laughs> um yeah, my we, we recently moved to New York, and my husband is in the middle of making that decision now as to whether he's going to adopt not as his primary team, of course, which is the Oakland A's, but um, whether he's going to go see Mets or Yankees games. Um, but you mentioned critical race theory, um, and obviously you've done a ton of work, including at least engaging with a lot of the intellectual predecessors of critical race theory um, in your book. I just want to ask you a very simple question that has become extremely contentious. What is critical race theory, right? Because we have at this point, even Ibram X. Kendi running away from the idea that he would be categorized as a critical race theorist. So what is critical race theory? Yeah, a man who who effervescently claimed that critical race theory had been foundational, a foundational influence in his work, now says, oh, no, I don't do critical race theory. Of course, he uses all the tropes and bedrock beliefs of critical race theory. This is really something to behold. Uh, conservatives, you included, have done such a good job of, of telling the American people what this is, of getting out of the gate, of warning them. And the American people, and that's as a response to the American people saying, what? No, no, my country is not repressive. No, we have we have imperfections that we want to 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 to, to correct, but they, they they intuit without reading these tracts that critical race theory does not want to improve America; it wants to destroy America. So, critical race theory, without I could really go on for hours because it's fascinating. The antecedents, and you really you have to stop somewhere. I stop at Kant, at Immanuel Kant. As the the source, the origin of this, uh, but but if you want critical race theory, it's it emerges in the in the late eighties in college campuses. It becomes dominant in law schools in the in the nineties, uh, really by quashing the opposition. And and the, the the bedrock belief of critical race theory is that racism is not it's not an individual choice that we do not commit the sin individually of not loving our neighbor uh, because of his or her race, but that, that racism is systemic, that racism, it, it lies in the institutions. It's written into the law. It's written into the structures. And therefore, uh, that produces our, our concepts. Uh, our superstructure has been produced by our concepts, and our concepts are systemically racist, and therefore, our social order is racist. 
There's a lot of other things, but that is really the root belief of critical race theory. Yeah, and it's it's a belief that necessitates a type of revolution, right? Perhaps not a bloody revolution, but it necessitates the overturning of the old order, um, right? Because obviously, even Kennedy's book is called how to be an anti-racist. Um, people don't want, especially today, they don't want to be labeled a racist. And, and more importantly, they don't want to be racist. They don't want to discriminate, um, unjustly discriminate against people on the basis of race um, or background. Uh, and, and so it's a powerful tool for them. But um, I think that's an important implication to highlight, right? If, if, if the American system is itself the roots of the American system and all the way through today um, are racist, not as an incidental part, because human beings are flawed and tribal, but as a inherent part of the system, then it kind of implies that the system needs to be not just, you know, changed over time or pruned or, or um, you know, evaluated for changes, positive changes that can be made, but, but wholly remade or, or um, overturned, doesn't it? That's exactly right. And that is uh, the corollary. Uh, of the belief that the, 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 the social system itself is, is oppressive. Uh, critical in critical race theory is not a, the, the word as we use it. It means praxis. It means making sure that theory is put into practice. By the way, this goes back to Marx. Uh, and this is Marxist. This is Marxist in all its implications. It's Marxist in, 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 its, in its origin and in its ideas and its beliefs. Marx himself said, I believe he wrote in, in eighteen in the eighteen seventies that philosophers believed that philosophy was about you know changing our ideas. But no, he said no. Philosophy is about philosophy is about changing the world. In critical race theory, its its second main tenet is that it wants to change the world, and this is a, a an aspect of critical race theory. Derek Bell, the godfather of critical race theory, is very clear about this in one of the foundational essays, Who's Afraid of Critical Race Theory, critical legal theory or critical legal um, uh, studies before it, also believes that the system needs to be changed, root and branch, uh, and critical theory before it, that was also a central tenet that, that everything had to be changed. What, what exactly is the relationship then with, with Marxism? Because obviously traditional Marxism so based on, or at least theoretically, on class solidarity. Um, and, and one of the things I'm looking forward, I don't think they've quite scheduled uh, all of their, their conference materials yet, but I'm very much looking forward to seeing whether the Democratic Socialists of America um, have a single panel on solidarity in the working class, right? Um, at their upcoming conference, they have been so wholly taken over by perhaps this um, this child of Marxism, right, that that denies class solidarity and instead tries to build racial solidarity um, and sees the world as divided racially rather than along the lines of class. So how did that focus change intellectually from the focus on um, income and wealth to and the disadvantages or advantages of those things um, to this focus on identity, you know, the, the change really begins in the 1920s and 30s. It is not felt until the 50s when it begins to influence the new left because Stalin hated all this. And, for example, Antonio Gramsci, one of the founders of this cultural Marxism, was not really translated into English until the late 1950s. But it's really uh, in the 20s with George Lukács 
and, and Antonio Gramsci, and then later Max Horkheimer in Germany, uh, who begin to say uh, Marxism has been misunderstood. It, sh- it, it is not meant to be economically determinant. Uh, if you have to go back to the early Marx, in which he talked about the totality of human activity, not just uh, not just the, the, the economic exchanges, but it's not just the satisfaction of material wants, but it's satisfaction of cultural wants, satisfaction of other wants, of, of love, of uh, uh, human interaction. And, and, and they call these, these, uh, these revolutionaries of a revolution, George Lukacs in, in, in Hungary, Antonio Gramsci in Italy, Marx Horkheimer in Germany, begin to call economically determinant Marxism vulgar Marxism, as if they're sophisticated. Um, but as I said, it kind of remains dormant, except in, in, in scholarly debates until the late 50s, when, uh, when then there's a reflowering of Gramsci and Lukács and Horkheimer begins to really have an impact. And then Herbert Marcuse comes in and really, uh, he really delineates it. He really speaks to it. He says, uh, it is the ghetto population, his words, that will be the revolutionaries. He says, he observes the riots. He says it is the American worker. All of them are very down on, on the European worker and the American worker. They will not uh, rebel. They will not overthrow the bourgeoisie. What Marx and Engels had called for constant revolution because of the contradictions of capitalism is not happening. But then they begin, so they begin to look at Lukács, Gramsci and so on, begin to look at cultural and totality of human experience. And then Marcuse recognizes the, uh, the minorities, the word of the left. Uh, the, he says that it is the people of other colors and races that will be the ages of revolution. He says, very importantly, they're not really, they're, their consciousness is not revolutionary. They, the new left, which Marcuse really influenced in the 60s, believed that the intellectual needed to be the, the, the vanguard, needed to be the, the, the one that gave these new revolutionaries a revolutionary consciousness. But it's, it is at that point, during those stages that I have delineated, that we go from what they call um, uh, folklore Marxism, you know, dialectical materialism, to the cultural Marxism and the totality of the human experience. Sorry for the long answer. No, I think it's it's very necessary history, um, and it really shows how traditional Marxism, or what what I guess was was labeled vulgar Marxism. I mean, always ran up on shoals in the United States, right? And and you have Marxist revolutionaries, you know, sort of lamenting this um, for more than a century um, about the United States that, in fact, class warfare. Uh, works particularly poorly here, but we do have this great Achilles heel, especially of the the Black American experience. I don't want to broaden it out to race because, we'll, as we'll touch on in a minute, um, you construct in your book the very interesting history of how these alternative large racial groups, like quote unquote Hispanic and Asian, were very consciously um, and politically formulated. But we do have this this great. Um, sort of shame of America, which is the fact that despite the words in our Declaration of Independence, we were born into the global world um, with slavery and then later with Jim Crow. Um, and it seems to me that this is a much more potent form of revolutionary fervor in America exactly because 
we are a diverse nation. As your your uh, the name of your um, seat, your fellow seat at Heritage indicates, right? Uh, e pluribus unum is our challenge um, here in America, and and we have not always met that challenge. Um, you know, do do you worry that this form um, of Marxism is going to be much more powerful in the United States than the vulgar form ever was? I must say that, that by the way, the Ipulmozunum is, is, is a, the child of a Swiss immigrant, the cemetery, who, who worked in the 1770s. And, and so already the founding generation understood that it was out of many. Uh, the, the official seal was going to be something that demonstrated that, that we had French and Irish and Germans and English and Scots. Uh, which to us, that's, oh my God, that's not diverse. No, I was very diverse to them back then. Um, and, but, and you're right. We also had Africans here at the time. We also had Indian Americans and, 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 and the Indians, the, the Native Americans are not taxed yet. They're not really living among, in, not all, some were. And, and uh, there are many f- freemen who vote. Uh, if they have the the, uh, the 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 requisite, they pay the requisite taxes on the requisite property. Uh, especially in the 1770s, that begins to wither away as as the as as the the, the lovers of, of slavery begin to really uh, wage a, a a campaign against the black race in the 19th century. Uh, but this is real. We have slavery. We have Jim Crow. We have segregation. Uh, these are real sins and, and, and they're ever present in our minds. And in fact, it is uh, these, the guilt that is felt, the guilt especially that is felt in the 60s as we begin to realize, you know, we've had 100 years almost of legally enforced discrimination with, with, with segregation. And, and, and that guilt can be manipulated but those who want to not appeal to our best ideals of all men are created equal, but who want to change the country, who want to change America, who don't like capitalism, who don't like many of the aspects, the, the, the you know, classical liberalism, uh, political liberalism. And, and that is the challenge that we have to understand Slavery, understand Jim Crow, understand all these bad things, but not allow our, our, our guilt to be manipulated by people who want to change America. We have to reinforce the ideals of America. We have to go back to what Martin Luther King said. We have he came to the steps of the mall to cash a, 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 a check, a promissory note. The promissory note was the promise of, of the founders. You know, Frederick Douglass spoke. In those cadences, uh, he he said the Constitution was a liberty document. What he reproached his fellow Americans was that they were not living by it. That is the right approach. Frederick Douglass has the right approach. Martin Luther King has the right approach. It is is let's live by our principles. The principles. Let's let's, let's demand the same thing that Douglass and King demand. Let's live by the principles of the Constitution. Let's not call the Constitution and Declaration illegitimate, which is what critical race theory does, which is what Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project does, which is what Black Lives Matter does, uh, which is what what Robin DiAngelo does. Let's 
stand it up on a pedestal and say, let's live up to this chat to, to these principles, not tear it down. Um, you know, we've just been discussing uh, what I think is rightfully uh, set aside as a unique experience um, of black Americans who are uh in, in many ways, you know, Native Americans, I don't mean in, in the racial category, I mean to the, the fact that they were native to the United States, not voluntarily. They, they were, in fact, black slaves were the, the only Americans who were not voluntarily um, a part of, of the American project. I think um, even though I, I reject critical race theory with regard um, to all these kinds of um, racial issues. I, I think I, you know, I understand sort of the Langton Hughes perspective, or at least I, I can emotionally understand it. I don't think that it's productive, um, but I, I do understand it. But you point out uh, in your book, um, in two successive chapters, that that the corresponding identities, when we talk about people of color, right, uh, as a general group, as though they're similar and have similar interests. Um, what we're really doing is trying to generalize that black American experience to first to um, what you call essentially a fake category of Hispanics, um, largely immigrants and then the, their children and children's children uh, who come from uh, Spanish speaking countries, which are of course wildly uh, different and all over the globe. Um, and then uh, also to to the category of Asians or AAPI, um, right? Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Right, um, right, right. So how did those categories get created? What were the incentives involved in, in creating them? And, and um, what were the, the sort of political motivations behind trying to create these identities, which you write in your book, really didn't exist in a sort of organic way in America beforehand? No, I mean, Hispanics, just, I, I'm here in the United States already when Hispanics is created. I remember my uncle coming in one day in Queens and saying, we're now all going to become called, going to be called Hispanics. That was a shock to all of us. Uh, we thought of ourselves as Cubans on our way to being American. Uh, we didn't need this, this way station. Um, the, what is interesting, as I discuss in my book, The Plot to Change America, the, the people, the activists who insisted, and it was a it was sustained insistence uh, against the bureaucracy that these categories be created, uh, and it was a, 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 a campaign they, they waged for many many years um, in the 1970s. They had read, they were influenced by critical theorists, and they had they were influenced by the new left, and they understood. Mar- what Marcuse had said in 1965, that it is the, the, the categories of other colors uh, that are going to lead to revolution. Uh, they, uh, in, in, in critical theory, is a way to do that. Again, we go back to Marcuse, who says liberation depends on the consciousness of servitude. So what critical theory does is that it analyzes society as being this system, the superstructure of oppression, and it tells it it, 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 it tells the members of the new, newly created categories, you are the oppressed, and you have to have this this uh, awareness of servitude, is consciousness of servitude, in order to overthrow the system. So the the creation of the categories um, 
is very much a part of this. Uh, when people say, well, no, this is just a recognition of a newly diverse America because the immigration law uh, changes in 1965, uh, that is a, it's just a misreading of the historical record. The first uh, National Advisory Committee on Race created by the U.S. Census in 19, is 1974. 1974 uh, is marked by two things. First, my arrival in the shores of New York, and second, uh, by the fact that it is probably the, 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 the smallest amount of the, of the foreign birth in the population in U.S. history. It's around 4.5%. Uh, so, so less than one-third what it is today. Uh, so there was no there was no hugely diverse population in 1974 uh, to create a new uh, National Advisory Committees on Race for the U.S. Census. They had already tried to, in 1970, they tried to throw out the 1970 census because it did not include a Hispanic category. It included Mexican-born, Cuban-born, you know, and I'm actually, I don't think that's a bad idea. I think we should ask if you're, you were born in Portugal or Peru in the U.S. Census, I would cap it at the third generation. If by the third generation we're not Americans, all indistinguishable, then there's this a problem. Uh, but I, I am interested in knowing what, what, is, what is the population of the foreign-born, where are they from, where are the parents from, and even the grandparents. It's, it's hugely helpful to researchers. Uh, but not if you're going to have paired off with the creation of categories of the oppressed, of the victims, who, who you're going to uh, nurture grievances with in order to overthrow the American system. The reason why I keep going back to this is because I, I love America. America is worth loving. Uh, I have uh, not only do I have my immigrant uh, story, which I have we have discussed here. As an American leader, I become a foreign correspondent and I travel the world. I live in seven countries at least a year: uh, Asia, Latin America, uh, Europe, especially Europe and, and 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 Asia. This is pretty pretty good here. Uh, again, imperfect. Nothing on earth will ever be perfect. We have our flaws, uh, but. Uh, it is worth not throwing out the baby with the, with the bathwater. It seems like you're saying that it's not really, even though your book uses the phrase identity politics, it's not really the identity part, but the politics part. That's the problem, right? right. Um, in, in the sense that I think in the closing chapter, you talk about what you know, your identity as a Cuban has meant to you. You mentioned smoking cigars once a week, right? Um, these these have always been, and, and there, of course, there are some tensions and always have been going back to even the America that you were talking about in the founding where you have tensions between Scots-Irish and English and um, and Swedes and Germans, right? Uh, these are different national groups, but those small and national identities or backgrounds they do have something to relevant to say about us. I, I, I think, um, you know, my own family background certainly informs how I think about things. I know yours does. Um, but it's, it's this zero sum idea of grievance and oppressor and oppressed that seems to engender a type of identity politics that the second piece of it, that is, is really pernicious for a, a country that has, so much diversity and has so many people from different backgrounds. Um, it seems to be creating a much sore 
spot than it needs to be. And that is that is what is new. That's the new element. And it doesn't arise organically. It is put in place on purpose. We have been, you mentioned the founding of the Scots-Irish. The Scots-Irish who begin to arrive in this country in, in 1713 with what's called Queen's Anne's War um, and begin to, to arrive in great, huge numbers throughout the 1700s. <laughs> Nobody likes them. You know, they arrive in Boston, they burn down the ships, they burn down the church. The, 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 the governor of, of Pennsylvania uh, brings them there to create a buffer zone between the Quakers and the Indians. And, and they're so quarrelsome, the Scots-Irish, that he writes a letter to a friend saying, oh, my God, what a horrible idea I had. So they pushed them further south to Virginia, and in 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 uh, in, 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 in Williamsburg, they said, you know, you know, you can't practice Presbyterianism here. We're an Anglican colony. If you if we want to practice your Presbyterianism, your Church of Scotland and religion, yeah, take to the mountains. Guess what? They're still there. They're in Appalachia. Uh, so so this is just a small vignette. And in the last thing that anybody thought was, let's take the Scots Irish and tell them you are victims. And you have grievances, and you have to overthrow the American system. No, what you have instead is Andrew Jackson, the the, the young son of two of these two Scots Irish immigrants, uh, who becomes an American patriot, uh, fights in the Revolutionary War. Two his brothers die in the Revolutionary War. Then is a hero in the in the Battle of eighteen twelve um, in New Orleans, and becomes our first populist president. That is the immigrant story. Andrew Jackson is the really the immigrant story. Uh, and then you have a succession of that. You have uh, with, with every immigrant group that comes in, nobody says to the Ellis Islanders this. You know, nobody says to the Armenians and the Syrians and the Greeks and the Jews and the Poles and the Hungarians who come in through Ellis Island between 1793 and 1924, millions of them, oh, my God, they're treating you very badly overthrow the U.S. government, your victims. Nobody does that. Why? Because it's insane to do so. What you do is you you bring them in. You say, no, you are an American, and, and the better Americans did that. The best Americans did that. Said, no, you are an American. If you want to be an American, you may have been born in Salerno, but you can become an American. And, and that is really the, the, the formula. What we're doing today is in in, in in the people doing it, you have to say they're close to evil, if not evil, and they have the dickens of a time doing it. You know, there was a, a very famous, uh, which I wrote about, uh, interview with the head of Voto Latino, Maria Teresa Kumar. She says this. She says, I have a very difficult time telling my constituents, you don't, you don't understand the systems of oppression that you live under. We have to teach them that they live in oppression. I mean, this is done, as you said, Inez, for a political purpose, but a nation cannot do this. No sane nation does this. Pol Pot did this. Pol Pot entered Cambodia and denigrated everything that had come before him, so much so that he calls his first year year zero. The Bolsheviks hate Russian traditions. You know, the Castroites hate Cuba as it was. Everything was corrupt and bad in the 500 years prior to 1959. But only people who want to revolutionize and change a country do this. In other words, not sane people. Let's turn a little bit to the more modern threat um, and and more modern, let's say, uh, clashes that develop out of this politicization of identity 
Um, obviously, you've been um, very much, uh, you've been a frequent writer on the subject of critical race theory in the schools. Um, you've worked with Christopher Rufo to produce some some great backgrounders over at the Heritage Foundation, which are essays over at the Heritage Foundation um, that, that listeners can read. But um, so some of the bills that states have been attempting to pass um, to, to forbid these kinds of creeds in the public school, um, those have been getting some pushback, not just from proponents of critical race theory, but uh, from from uh, people who oppose critical race theory, but think that these bills are in some way illiberal. And I'm, I'm going to quote from a New York Times op-ed that appeared about a week ago, um, written by David French, Camille Foster, um, Thomas Chatterton Williams, and a fourth guy whose name has dropped out of my head. Um, but this is what they wrote. These laws, meaning these anti-CRT bills, threaten the basic purpose of historical education in a liberal democracy, but censorship is the wrong approach even to the concepts that are the intended targets of these laws. And they essentially argue that the Civil Rights Act plus democratic action, small d democratic action, i.e. parents going um, to their school boards, or enough to counter this kind of material in the schools. What's your opinion on what is necessary to counter it? Um, and, and on, and I'm not asking you to opine like on the language, legislative language necessarily of all of these several dozen bills at this point. Um, but on the general concept of the state legislature getting involved uh, in, in these kinds of battles. Well, let me start with, I, I don't, I, let me challenge. That's not your premise. I wouldn't say that David French is against critical race theory. Uh, I haven't seen it. I've seen many evidence, a lot of evidence to the contrary. Thomas Chatterton uh, Williams and Camille Foster have been strong, I would say, strong opponents of critical race theory. I think that the best laws are the ones that identify where the Civil Rights Act is violated uh, by the implementation of critical race theory and, and, and say, well, you can't do that. It's against the law, and therefore you will not be allowed to violate Title Six, the Title Six of the Civil Rights Act says that you cannot discriminate against a student because of his or her race or national origin, uh, and, and I think that's right and proper, and I think that's a that's a good law, and I think it should be implemented. And what we are seeing with a lot of the trainings and curricula that use elements of critical race theory is that they do separate students by affinity group. In fact, one of the one of the aspects of this is crit- critical responsive teaching, also CRT, which says that you must teach all all subjects to students in a different way because of their category. So it, it becomes it's most absurd with Hispanics and Asians, uh, which is made up. It's synthetic. Uh, you know, you have Mexicans and Argentines and Cubans and Chileans who are very, very, very different. Uh, and their offspring in the United States are going to come from very different backgrounds. Uh, they don't speak, the language that spoke the most in South America is Portuguese, not Spanish. Um, and then when you get to Asians, oh my goodness, it is Americans of Indian and Pakistani and Korean and Asian and, and Chinese and, and, and Indonesian and Filipino origin. So what is it about an Asian American <laughs> that you teach math differently to? Uh, they're doing quite well in math, by the way, many of the Asian American subgroups. Uh, so anything that does that, that separates students by these categories, violates Title VI. Uh, uh, anything that teaches that, uh, tells any kid that 
there is systemic racism because of systemic racism, they won't be able to succeed. And if they do even succeed individually, they will be perpetuating uh, white uh, supremacy uh, and systemic racism that is that should be banned. So all the laws that do this, that approach it in this manner, I must tell you um, uh, to, to, to just acknowledge that I have helped a lot of these states. I forget how many, to be honest, uh, with the, the legislative language. I traveled to Baton Rouge to testify in the Louisiana State House. I helped. Uh, I helped uh, New Hampshire, and in some other states in, in the crafting. What we always say is, uh, is this is the the best way to go. My co-writer, my co-author Jonathan Butcher, and I are currently writing on a paper uh, detailing, talk, going through this criticism, which again I, I, I must say that it is deceptive. Uh, Deceptive. And the French article and the, the William article was somewhat deceptive. The, 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 the op-ed that the Washington Post ran by Kimberly Crenshaw was completely deceptive. She did not deal with the issue at all. She said that critics of critical race theory just don't want history to be taught. I assure you that nobody working in my space, that is the case for uh, we want more history to be taught. I love history. I think students should have a firm grounding in history that includes slavery, that includes Jim Crow, that includes uh, segregation. Um, uh, so, so these bills are not at all, as Kimberly Crenshaw claimed, banning uh, the, the teaching of history. By the way, just, just as an aside, I think that we should also teach history in this global context. We should not be so narcissistic as to think we created slavery. Uh, we, you know, the country where I was born, Cuba had slavery much later than the United States. It was only abolished in, in 1888. I personally, as a child, met a woman who had been a slave because slavery was, was abolished so late in Cuban history. Uh, we're the only, like Sean Willen says, we're the only country that has political abolitionism. Uh, so, so all of these things need to be taught the awfulness of slavery needs to be taught more. Uh, Frederick Douglass needs to be taught more. Even W.B. Du Bois, with whom I completely disagree, ended up joining the Communist Party before his death. I, I think he should be taught, a very influential figure. Uh, so what we advise the bill writers is do not ban the teaching of it. I think children should be, should be taught how to recognize poison ivy. Um, but but ban the implementation when it violates existing law, when it violates the 14th Amendment, uh, the, the, the equal protection in the, under the law clause. Yeah, you know, um, it also makes it easier. It gives parents another tool uh, to try to, to leverage into the system um, their disagreement or register their disagreement with these kinds of, of lessons. Um, and, and you only need it's it's surprising to me actually that I mean it's not surprising but um, it should be surprising that David French would go this route because he above all should know that no matter how many victories for example constitutional victories you win on an issue like free speech in public universities in court um, if at the end of the day there's a very small percentage of of people who are going to have the time the resources and the gumption to carry a federal constitutional suit all the way to fruition. And frankly, just like universities, ignore a lot of the decisions on First Amendment grounds. Um, they essentially settle once every few years. They rewrite their policies with new words, and the whole game begins again. 
Um, so it, it's funny to me that he would be unaware of, of how ineffectual, even if you have a strong federal case, which these are novel arguments under the Civil Rights Act. I mean, I think you're right. I think that if we take the, the bare words of Title VI, um, some of what has been implemented in our schools is is a violation of our civil rights law. But it remains to be seen whether those lawsuits um, will be able to be successful. And even if they are, a very small percentage of people are ever going to be able to carry those kinds of lawsuits, don't you think? And French should know this. As you said, he's a litigator. He, he should know, I think he was a litigator, he should know how difficult it is for parents to do this, how, how costly it is, what, what it costs to their, to their children in terms of social costs. Uh, this is, no, we, we can't put the onus on parents. Parents need our help. And parents are rising up and speaking out, but they need the help of their elected officials. I think that, and I think you agree with this, that the natural sovereign in education is the school board. I'd rather see the 14,000 school districts taking action in, 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 in these areas, but I think it's fine for state legislators to do things that have helped them. Some of the bills are better than others, perhaps, uh, but is it a good faith effort to, to, to help the parents? This is a parent-led protest. They're setting up committees of correspondence, just like the colonists did, just like Sam Adams did in Boston in the 1660, in the 1760s, and then it extended to the other 12 colonies. I think parents are rising. I'm crisscrossing the country. I'm speaking. These are not meetings that I set up. These are people who called me, who asked me to come and speak at their meeting. Hundreds of people, 650 in, in, in Waukesha, just west of Milwaukee, 500 in Denver, 300 in Loudoun County. I am going to be visiting many, many cities in this fair land starting in about two weeks. This is, this is people who want me, and, and this is a parent-led grassroots thing. They, it cannot be left to them, however, to wage expensive lawsuits. So what is it going to take for parents to be able to succeed? Um, these parents that you're talking about, that you talk to all around the country, you know, what is it going to take or rather what combination of policies is it going to take? Because as you lay out in your book, as, as we know, this didn't start a year ago with the riots last summer. Um, the, the tenets and principles, um, the underlying premises of critical race theory, these have long been a part of the academy. They've long been a part of schools of education where teachers get their master's degrees. Um, they've been part of teacher trainings for years, if not decades. Um, you know, what tools do parents need to make this kind of revolt successful? Well, first they need to lose their fear. Lose their fear like Poles lost their fear when John Paul visited uh, Poland in the 1980s. And the Poles came out and looked at each other and said, now I, I, we shouldn't be afraid of Jaroszewski. We shouldn't be afraid of Andropov. And within... Six, seven years, the Soviet Union was gone. Poland was a free country. I think that parents need to pick up the phone, call the principal, uh, go to school board meetings. Uh, I think that their leaders need to listen to them. 
And I think that one solution, though this is not the whole solution, but it's got to be a part of it, is school choice. I think different states need to begin to realize, just like Bill Barr said, Bill Barr, Attorney General Barr, late May had a very good speech in which he laid it out. He said, we have an establishment clause. Uh, this has now become a state religion. Critical race theory is a state religion under Biden-Harris. Um, I don't. I prior to that, I didn't call it a state religion. I, I did call it an official state ideology. They have put. They have made it so. This is all because of Harris, by the way. This is all, I always say Biden-Harris. Uh, the White House also says the Biden-Harris administration. Harris believes in equity. She believes that there should be unequal treatment of Americans because of their race. They want to go back to unequal treatment of Americans because of their race. She does. Equity calls out for that. So I think the American people just need to do more of what they're doing. I'm very encouraged by what is taking place. And I'm extremely encouraged by how upset the left is. Our woke overlords, for that is what they are. Our establishment, very woke. Uh, they Not just our government. But our elite cultural institutions, the media, Chuck Todd, all of them are very woke. And, and I think that they're really in high dudgeon. They're saying, what? What? The natives are, are restless? The people are, are rebelling? Uh, the, the parents are turning out? And they, they want to say that this is AstroTurf. No, it's grassroots. I tell you, it's grassroots. I haven't seen this in a very long time. Uh and and the the opposition to it is astroturf. Three hundred leftist groups got together uh, last week to 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 get their talking points in order. And by golly, they need to get their talking points in order because they're they're, they're, they're running around schizophrenic all over the place, saying the CRT is not being used. I have them battling on Twitter with people saying CRT is not being used anywhere. And then in the same breath, the next day, they come back and say, but if you criticize CRT, you're racist. Uh, well, which is it, really? Uh, they're being sophists. So I'm very encouraged both by the energy I see on the ground and the hysteria I see among our woke overlords. One of the benefits of being a woke overlord, though, um, is access to, as you point out, access to a lot of pots of money from the various federal bureaucracies, the knowledge of how to work those federal bureaucracies, um, and, and how to accrue benefits to either groups or individuals that work on their political team. Um, how can we counter some of that institutional influence? Because you, you write a very compelling tale that we don't have time to go into here about how um, a lot of these these identity politics interest groups are very, very cozy um, with various agencies and almost have a revolving door in terms of getting grants. And then when the right administrations are in power, going to go ahead and head up those agencies and channel more grants to all the same organizations that they head up. We have something strong on our side. We have human nature. You and I have had this conversation before. Uh, they, the left, especially the Marxist left, promises liberation the same way that Christianity promises liberation. Christianity, Christianity promises liberation in the afterworld and tells us constantly that this world 
we're not gonna we're not gonna get liberation here. It's it, it's flawed. Uh, Marxists promise liberation on this earth. We, you and I have talked about it before. Che Guevara's Nuevo Hombre, and as you put it, and I borrow this all the time, and I never give you credit. The new man never shows up, and that's the problem. The new man never shows up, and then the Marxists become very angry, <laughs> and they use coercion. Marcuse, going back to Marcuse, has repressive rights, repressive tolerance in 1966, saying we cannot allow, once we take over, we cannot allow conservative ideas to be repeated, flourish. Facebook, Twitter, Google, repressive tolerance. We have human nature, and we, we work with human nature. We know that it is not because of the benevolence of the baker, the butcher, and the brewer that we get our beef and our beer, and our bread. And we, we've devised a system that works with human nature and self-interest. And that's why we have prosperity and affluence, and the other side is only good at producing bread lines. So I am counting, you're right, I'm not being Pollyannish, they do control the institutions, they do control the levers of power. We have the human element on our side, we have human nature on our side, Um, and, and, and we have the fact that the American people are uniquely, uh, some would say exceptionally attached to liberty, something that uh, social scientists and foreign visitors have remarked since Alexis de Tocqueville uh, arrived on our shores. Well, on, on that unusually for this podcast, unusually optimistic note, Um, I have a lot of pessimists on, but you and Christopher Rufo are the great optimists, and perhaps that's why you've both been so successful in, in um, utilizing your work to push back against some of these ideas. Uh, Mike Gonzalez, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you can find more of Mike's work over at the Heritage Foundation's website. Um, you can also purchase his book, The Plot to Change America, How Identity Politics is Dividing the Land of the Free. And as I said, he has a, another book on BLM uh, coming out in, I believe, this fall. Mike, would you want to give us the, the name of that book and where Sep listeners can purchase it? September 7th, a BLM, The New Marxist Revolution, uh, pre-sale on Amazon. Uh, I like it to sell at least as well as The Plot to Change America. Um, so pre-sales right now. Uh, In it, I detail the the Marxist nature of the leaders of BLM, the founders and the, the, the women who lead it, and of the organizations. Obviously, take no issue with the concept. The concept that Black Lives Matter is very dear to my heart and to yours. This has been enormously fun for me. I very much admire the work you do in us. So thank you very much for having me on. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon. <laughs>